All right, everybody. We're going to jump into God's Word together here. Uh, I'm going to do the scripture reading for today, mostly because, uh, because we got to chop it up a little bit, because this is a huge chunk. Uh, so we, we're going to pick and choose a little bit, so we're not here for 20 minutes just reading chapter after chapter. So uh, we are in the middle of Acts. Uh, for those that are, haven't been here in a while, we're in the middle of, we're going through, I think we're going to end up going through all of Acts. We'll see what happens, but we're really enjoying the, really enjoying the series. So we're in the part of the, uh, of the book where things are getting a little bit confrontative. Uh, we've been going through what the early church looks like, and now all of a sudden there's a bit of a clash with culture, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. But I invite you to stand, uh, if you're able, and we're going to read God's Word together. This is Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witness who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like, uh, they saw his face Sorry, what? They saw his face was like the face of an angel. There you go. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, now there's a bit of a dot, dot, dot here. We're going to skip some sections because he goes on for about 50 verses about the history of Israel. He just stands there and he recounts the whole story. In the beginning, or starting from about Abraham, you know, in the beginning, this is how God had his covenant with his people. And he kind of goes through some of the, you know, the, the characters that we all know and love. You know, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all these different people. And he winds up getting all the way. Uh, in verse 51, he kind of comes to his conclusive statement. Because he's recounting all the different times that Israel hasn't obeyed God and has turned their backs on him and broken his covenant. So this is kind of where he sums it up in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 51. We'll read two more verses. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray that it would speak to us today. Thank you for how willing and able your spirit is able to work through your word. We're so grateful for that, and I pray that today would be no exception. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I have a seat? All right. So we're talking about Stephen today and the accusations that came against him and uh, his main response. So first, we need to look at what the accusation actually is from these people. And I, uh, well, my hope is today is that 
Um, I don't know if you find this when you're reading scripture, but sometimes I find it hard to relate to deeply Jewish things because I didn't grow up in ancient Israel. And sometimes you have to do a little bit of digging to go, how does this apply to me? Especially when the whole point of Stephen's sermon, you have to understand Israel's history and what God was up to in, you know, with those people and why he made a covenant with them. And his whole sermon is based on people knowing that. He's a very specific audience. Like he's talking to the Sanhedrin. These are the Jewish leaders. They know, they have the first five books of the Bible memorized. They probably have most of the rest of it memorized. Like these guys know the Old Testament. And uh, this is his audience. So sometimes I find it difficult when, I, when you jump into a place like Acts and you're hearing these quotes from someone like Stephen speaking to that audience. It's going, hey, how does this work? And how does this apply to me? And the point of that sermon is a little bit lost on me. So today I hope we can get to um, how this is actually deeply applicable to you and I. So what is the people's accusation? Let's break it down a little bit. Uh, it says it in uh, 614. It, uh, it says this. Is it behind me? Yes. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So what's the big, what's the big fear? The Jews are going, this Jesus guy is changing everything and he's destroying, he wants to destroy all the things that we hold dear. Now, is that statement true? If you look at it, it's like half true. It's a, it's a tricky one to know. You can see that they're conniving and probably taking Jesus's and Stephen's words and twisting them, going, well, he did come to change a little bit, and the temple is going to change. That's going to change. But you see how their stance is using words like change, destroy. Uh, earlier, uh, it says, I should have written these down, but it says other ones. Um, yeah, he's speaking against the holy place and against the law. So there's this deep, deep held value by the Jewish people going, okay, this whole Moses law thing, super important to us. It holds our whole society together. It's actually what keeps us in power as well. And the temple, this is where we meet God. Like this is, we do, all the sacrifices happen there. Without the temple, we can't be with God anymore. So you can kind of start to resonate with them going, okay, if somebody is starting to seemingly attack the code of conduct by which I live my life and by which I've ascended to power and have built all of who I am, those laws and principles and customs, if someone seems to even be attacking those, I'm going to go after them. Also, the center of life and worship being Jerusalem and the temple specifically, someone's going to, if someone's saying that that is no longer as important as it once was, that's going to raise a couple of red flags. So it's a bit of a distortion. Now, Jesus is being misquoted through Stephen, where Jesus didn't say that. He said he came to fulfill all of these things. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says very explicitly, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, and this is the key word, fulfill them. We're going to be talking a lot about that word today, but to fill, fulfill them. So, but that's going to get a little confusing for people. And uh, so, you know, what does this mean? What are, the, what are the customs that Jesus is talking about? Well, you, we have to just spend one second trying to remember what the point of all those laws and customs are that are held so dear by all these Jews. Why? What was the point of all of them from way back in the day? And the covenant relationship 
that God wants to have with his people, the law was, the, was human, humanity's part to play in it. And then you take your marriage vows and you say the thing and then she says the thing and like it's the, it's the part that you say. It's the part that you're going to do. It's the commitment that you're making. That's the law. So the point was to actually bring the people of God, Israel, into right relationship with God. And if they followed the law and they did all the things and, and God made a way for himself to dwell among them. And the, the fancy word is to tabernacle among them. He wants to dwell with his people. And so way back in the day in ancient Israel, that was just a tent, you know, and then it was a temple. And, but the whole thing was so that God could be with his people who are sinful, but he wants to be with them so bad that he's creating these laws and structures and customs to try and do that. So that was the, that was the real thing going on. And there's a bunch of things that, there's, that, that make the people of God the people of God, a bunch of customs. There's like ceremonial washing, there's the atonement sacrifices, there's circumcision, there's all these different things that set the Jewish people apart from all the other nations of the world because they're special. They're like the God's bride and God wants one bride. He still only wants one bride. It's called his church now. But then it was these, his chosen people that he wanted to be faithful to and have that faithfulness returned. So Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, not abolish it, but fulfill it. And so what he's saying is, I'm actually coming to exemplify. He, he, didn't, he didn't deviate from the law. He came to fulfill it. And how he did that was by embodying perfect faithfulness to God. So he fulfilled the law, but he did it in such a way that was like he got the point of it, which from the very beginning was so that God and man could be together. And Jesus just lived this life where he didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it. And was, was the embodiment of what the law was supposed to be about. And his heart was in it. He loved God with his heart. And where Israel kept getting, like, you know, deviating from all these things, going, ah, they get lost in the customs and they get lost in the religiosity of it all. But Jesus came and saw the law and then fulfilled it perfectly, going, this is the way that I get to be with my father. It's the way that I am faithful to him. It's the way that the covenant is upheld. Like, I, I, don't, I don't need, like, this ring that I have on is, is not why I stay faithful to Steph. Like, it's not like, oh, yeah, we're at the ring. Whew. It's like, no. It's, this is an outward sign of an inward thing. It'd be really weird if I had to remember with this ring. It'd be super strange. It's just an outward sign of what's in my heart. And in the same way, Jesus fulfilled the law by going, it's not about the ring or the or the. the the customs. It's about what it means. So that's really neat. So of course, Jesus starts going around saying, hey, you know what? It's not really about that. It's about your heart. People are going, but the loss and the customs and the rings, right? So you can see why they start freaking out. Then the other accusation is about the place. Jesus is going to destroy the temple. Well, no, you're actually going to get one better. The temple is going to be you and us. Jesus made a way that the temple is now you and me. It's not a tent in the center of a camp. It's your heart. That's good news, right? But the way that it's heard by these people is like, he's going to destroy the temple. Temple doesn't matter anymore. That's how this whole thing's held together. Not realizing that the fulfillment of the whole story is happening, or it's not a, ta he wants to tabernacle in your heart, not just in the middle of the nation. Really neat. But this all gets missed. So this is the best news, but notice how people use words like change, destroy, instead of seeing the whole fulfillment message. And Jesus' message of fulfillment was just heard as blasphemy, which is super ironic. 
like Jesus is blasphemy, like this herd is blasphemy. Same God. So I had to do a little bit of work to try to figure out how to relate to their anger because we don't have a bunch of, or seemingly so, we don't have a bunch of ancient customs that, you know, somebody would. But, or do we? And I started thinking about what are the gods of our culture? What are the customs that we would say, if someone said any differently, we'd be like, that's blasphemy against our culture's God, which unfortunately it's a little less noble than ancient Israel. They were trying to worship like a real God that like, you know, had them walk through the Red Sea. I mean, that's, I get it. Like you, I would be, I would want to follow that God too. But for us, it's mostly just ourselves, which is really sad. You know, like we have a God and it's called ourselves. And we live in this really amazing thing, largely called democracy, where the byproduct of it is that we're all just these little isolated autonomous units that all cast our votes and we're all these little individual gods and kings. And we have to work together a little bit to get the people we want in power. But at the end of the day, we're kind of our own little gods. That is, that is our culture. At least it's my heart. So I started thinking, I was writing down a list of like, what would be, if, if Jesus was here in our culture, what would be the blasphemous things that he would say in our culture? Like, how, what are the things that we hold dear and we would just miss it entirely? So I, I, wrote, some, I wrote down some laws and customs that maybe we have, and you can you, see if you resonate with them. Uh, it is super normal to say in our culture, do what makes you happy, right? If you go and you could stand up in front of any lecture theater in any liberal university and say, do what makes you happy, and everyone would be like, yeah, do what makes you happy. Sure, why not? No one will care. I don't know, really know what that means. It's actually really dangerous advice. But anyways, we're just all fine with that. Do what makes you happy. That's like a law of our culture. So then, you know, Bible comes along and goes, there's joy in suffering. And you're like, oh, that's offensive. Try saying that in front of your, that same lecture theater. What if we all suffered for someone other than ourselves and for love's sake? And like all of a sudden people are going, hold on a second. We're supposed to do what makes, our, makes us happy in this culture. What about prioritize yourself? No one's going to get upset with you for saying prioritize yourself. Right? You can say that anywhere. No stones thrown. Bible comes along and says, have no other gods before me. Wow. That's offensive. Believe in yourself? Disney. Just believe in yourself. And if you believe in yourself, you know, the, the gospel of Walt Disney, like you... You just believe more and more in yourself and you're gonna get, it's gonna get better somehow. Then the Bible comes along and says, place your hope entirely in Christ's work. That's where it's all gonna be found. You can't, you can't, there's, you, you're not worth believing in, in any stretch. <laughs> believe in somebody way more powerful than you. So offensive. I got so many. Another one. Um, you choose who you wanna be. Zero confrontation in our culture. You choose who you want to be. You'll get applauded for that. And then you come to church and someone says, your, your, your identity is in Christ. Nowhere else. You can't find it in yourself. You have to ask him. He made you. It's like, how dare you? Another one. Uh, strength comes from within. Right? It's kind of like believing in yourself. Paul says, boast in your weakness. So I think we have some codes of conduct that we can say anywhere, anytime, and everyone's like, yeah, sure, great, that's fine. 
So the question becomes then, what's like the temple? What's our, what's our version of the place where we all go to worship? What's our, so if we're our own gods and those are the laws and customs by which we abide so that we can, you know, keep becoming our own gods, I guess, to believe in ourselves more. Where are the temples? I think that, um, look, where do we, what are the idols that we, that we make? I think it's family and relationships. If we can just have, if we can just have like the perfect family unit and all my relationships are just getting along just so, and uh, like you create these little, I don't know, these units that keep you happy and relationally whole and not alone. We really, we really idolize those things. Then Jesus says, whoever loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves the son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, then all of a sudden our family units can't be the thing that we worship, ultimately. Another one, I think there's, there's the family unit. I think there's also just the life we create, like the comfort, the leisure, and then the work-life balance. You know, the career and then the, and the balance of it. That's like a, that's a huge place where we go to worship ourselves. If we can create that temple, you know, and then Jesus says, the one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So I think that we can deeply relate to these ancient Israelites where we are super offended by Jesus saying something seemingly really different. Now, what's funny about this is just like them slightly missing it, we can also slightly miss it too. Because I think that God wants us to have nice things and be happy and, you know, have whole relationships and have good family units and good relationships and bless us with money and all those things. But we miss it just so. So I think our accusation is the same. Jesus wants to change our customs and he wants to destroy our places of worship. But do we see it as fulfillment? And this is the question that we have to, this is the question that we have to ask ourselves today. So I think if you tried to say, if you went into a lecture theater and said, Christ is the only one who has the authority to define your identity or something like that, I think you'd get dragged out and stoned just like Stephen does, which we're going to talk about next week. I think you get whatever the figurative, I don't think literally, but you're dead. You're so dead. So what's Stephen's response? What's Stephen's response to the accusation that... Uh, that Jesus has come to destroy everything and ruin our whole party. What does Stephen say? 751. You can put this up. Should be the name. Yeah. You stiff-necked people, your hearts are still, still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. So there's a very intentional word choice here that Stephen is using. So remember the accusation is he's coming against all that Moses gave us. That's one of the things they say, right? He's destroying, he's, he's, he's getting rid of all the laws Moses gave us, our whole substructure of our whole society, right? Stephen is quoting Moses from Deuteronomy here. Very clever. And nobody's missing the fact that Jesus, that, um, that Stephen just quoted Moses in Deuteronomy, okay? When we'll read this. Deuteronomy 10 you can put that slide up, starting in chapter 12. The whole Sanhedrin, the audience of this, not missing this at all. This is Moses in Deuteronomy. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. So Stephen is going, oh yeah, your accusation against me is that I'm ruining the Moses thing? Stephen's response is, you're just like your ancestors, and nothing has changed, and you're missing God now just like you were then. I'm not changing, I'm not saying anything different. I'm saying the exact same thing. And this, it's really powerful. So Moses is saying, it's a beautiful chunk of scripture. Moses is saying, the Lord your God is God. He's your fulfillment. I love all the language about love him. Like it's, it's very intimate language used in this passage. He gave you commands and decrees for your own good. He set his affection on you, which is mind-blowing. Therefore, honor the covenant in your heart and don't resist it. This was the point of the law. Honor him in your heart. Like honor the covenant. All these decrees are for your own good. The things you said on your wedding day in Exodus 19 is, is in your heart now. Don't let it just be customs. Let it be in your heart. And so what is Stephen saying? He's saying, you guys still aren't doing that. You're still not doing that. Your deviation from God was because of your stiff necks then, and you're missing Jesus because of your stiff necks now. That's very, very powerful language Stephen is using. Because Stephen says this, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you've betrayed and murdered him. Your stiff-neckedness and your unwillingness to have, not th- to have your hearts join the covenant, not just your bodies. To have your heart, have internally, to, to internally to turn towards him, to have God be your ultimate savior. Internally, you're still just doing outward things and it's making you miss the whole point. In summation, he's saying, you're still not letting God himself be your fulfillment. God himself. So I think Stephen sums this up in one line for us when he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit, which is an interesting thing to say. You know, it's a very New Testament thing to say. But Stephen is saying the whole time, the Holy Spirit, you know, God was trying you in the whole time. He's after you. He's after you. His presence wants to dwell in you and wants to be with you. And you always resist that. I think pride and the Holy Spirit do not mix because pride and relationship don't mix. You guys know this. Pride and relationship are not good bedfellows. They don't get along very well. They're actually opposites pride in relationship. And so their proud, stiff-necked hearts couldn't be relationally connected. Your problem is pride then, and your problem is pride now. So I think that without the Holy Spirit in us, we misunderstand Jesus's message as blasphemy, even today. And so every Sunday, here's what we have an opportunity to do. We, we, try to provide a space here, all of us all, all together, working together, where we're trying to provide a space, I mean we as in all of us, for us all to encounter the Holy Spirit again, for us all to let him into our hearts again as a community. 
And if we don't, slowly but surely, the message of Christ becomes more and more blasphemous to us. What he's saying becomes more and more offensive and the pride of our heart that sneaks in starts to look at him and go, we start to use words like destroy and change, not fulfill. Because we haven't let ourselves, like we haven't let ourselves come here and receive the Holy Spirit once again, which takes a lot of humility to come and need someone, to come and need this community, to need each other. And the whole time God is knocking on our hearts going, I want to be your fulfillment personally. Like I always have been for all of ancient Israel and all the history of the church. That's all I'm doing. Don't resist the Holy Spirit because if you let him in and pride, and you let pride die in your heart, you will start to see me for who I really am and you won't miss me like so many people have missed me. Even the people that were <laughs> had the whole chunks of scripture memorized that talked about him showing up. I feel like the main reasons I don't on a Sunday, like, I mean, you could do it anytime, welcome the Holy Spirit in your heart, but it's kind of the point of these moments. Main reasons I don't is like appearances or comfort or control, or I don't like, not, I don't like being vulnerable. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. But I find the Holy Spirit just rushes into those moments for us. So today, if you find yourself buying into our culture's customs and practices and places of worship, I think Jesus wants to come and fulfill those things today. He wants to come and fulfill them and make them even more rich and beautiful. I think he wants to give us a life to the full. I think he wants to give us deep and healthy, lasting relationships. I think he wants us to, have, to be so secure in who we are and our identity in him that the evil of this world doesn't touch us because we're so identified by other things. I think he wants to give you and I the most significant purpose of all time that has eternal ramifications to be leaders in his kingdom that's coming now and it's coming in its fullness later. It's a great plan. The fulfillment of all that we want in our hearts, that's, that's what he's doing. He's doing that now for you and I. And it's a great plan. I, uh, <laughs> I just feel like if you're not following Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of all your hopes and desires and longings that he made in you, you have a bad plan. <laughs> you have a really bad plan. It's all gonna dry up and you're gonna miss the coming of the kingdom in your life. It's super serious. And Stephen's imploring the leadership of the people of God in this story to go, you're still doing the exact same thing. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be proud. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. This is the point of the whole trajectory of the whole story, and you killed him. And I just feel like we can do this so quickly. And, and you know what's even worse? Like, and this is what I'm guilty of, is like God wants to fulfill this, these hopes and desires that we have, but what I do so often is I just have like a diet Christian version of the world's plan. Like the world has the plan of get as happy as you can with all the mantras I mentioned, right? Have the white picket fence, do the things, get comfortable, have a work-life balance, take care of yourself, prioritize yourself. And because I'm a Christian, now I have to come here and feel guilty every Sunday. <laughs> it's the worst of both worlds. And I do it all the time. I'm going, how does Jesus help me build my thing? Don't we do that like so often? 
And Jesus didn't let himself be used for the Sanhedrin's plans. He didn't let himself be used for the Jewish religious leadership's agendas. It's like, I'm not doing that. We're going to go bless the whole world now. That's what we're doing. Remember the promise from the very beginning of I'm going to use you to bless the whole world? Remember that promise with Abraham? Still doing that. (laughs) And I'm not going to do your thing. We're going to do the thing I always intended on doing. And this is what my fear is for us, is that we would have, we would be caught in the middle, like the Sanhedrin was, of going, I have my hopes and agendas and dreams, and then Jesus seems to have his, and you do have to pick. And this whole middle ground of like diet Christianity, that I like to call it, is, is the same as rebellion. It's just more cowardly. It's just more cowardly. And I do it all the time. So today, is Jesus saying that he is the fulfillment of your life? He is the fulfillment of your life. Good news? Or is it blasphemy to you? Is it good news or is it blasphemy? And more often than not, it feels like blasphemy in my heart to the God of my life, which is me and my pride and my arrogance. And I feel like I hear Stephen telling us today (laughs) from beyond the grave that uh, he's like, I encourage you, don't resist the Holy Spirit. If you feel like it's blasphemy, don't resist the Holy Spirit. Don't be stiff-necked. And this is the point in Acts. Okay, we're going to get into this later. But this is where the culture clash happens. This is where the rub really comes. Because the church is this, you know, nice place that's doing Jesus-oriented things, and it's taking care of everybody, and it's this wonderful place to be. And then all of a sudden, it clashes in a big way with with the Jewish leadership, and the whole church scatters after this. The whole church scatters. Um, and actually, that's how most of the gospel spreads <laughs> to the surrounding area. So God uses this whole persecution and the stoning of Stephen, which we'll talk about next week, to still advance his kingdom. But uh, you and I get to feel the exact thing of going, we clash with culture. We clash with the gods of our culture. And, and we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we preach. We don't preach Jesus is the best way to fulfill your hopes and dreams. We don't preach that. And if you reverse the order of the two, our church would quadruple in size in, a, in under a year. <laughs> Guarantee you. It'd be so easy to say that. Come here, it's going to be great. So you have a community and friends and all these things and we'll get the perks of the kingdom. And we will miss the way that you and I were designed to be fulfilled, which was the promise from the very beginning for the God of the universe to tabernacle in your heart, to tear the veil between you and him for eternity, to be with the one who knows and loves you best. And the only thing separating that is don't resist the Holy Spirit, you stiff-necked people. And Moses said it then, and Stephen said it thousands of years later, and we're still saying it today, and nothing's changed. But we have this amazing gift called the Advocate and the Comforter and the Holy Spirit that is knocking on our door every second of every day, waiting for us to humble ourselves. And we have an opportunity to do that yet again here at church.
I'm going to invite the band up, and I'd like to pray for us. Father, you are so after us. It is so apparent to me that you are so after the hearts of your creation. Wow, we're grateful for that. You are so relentless. You are so good. You do not give up. We've sung about your faithfulness today, and I'm so glad you are so faithful and tenacious, and you're still pursuing your bride. You have not forgotten us. You didn't forget Israel. You haven't forgotten us. You won't fail in your plans and purposes to be united with your creation again. You won't fail in that. And we are humbled before this amazing plan that you're unfolding in its perfection. Your plan is so loving. So Father, we say that we are your bride once again. And we say we are faithful to you with our hearts. We let our hearts be rendered. We don't resist you. We don't resist turning and we don't stiffen our necks in arrogance and pride and we turn to the one who we were designed to love and to be loved by. Father, I thank you for the offense of your gospel. I thank you how it offends my pride. You are so desperate for relationship that you're willing to offend me and you're willing to offend all that separates you and I. And so, Father, I pray that if there's anything in the hearts of these people that I love so deeply that would be separating them from you and your infinite love and mercy and justice and comfort and fulfillment and blessing and significance and purpose and so many other synonyms that you would, by your grace and your mercy, sweep through this room by your Holy Spirit and convict our hearts. Would you cut us to the quick, Lord, and would we turn to you, your children, and as we do, that you, I pray that you would fill our hearts with that sense of fulfillment that only comes from you, the one that was designed to do it. We don't resist you. We welcome you here in this place. We welcome you here in this place. If it's on your heart, just tell him, tell him that you welcome him in your heart. It's so simple. It's so simple. Just say, Lord, I welcome you here. You're welcome in this place. This is your temple right here in my heart, in my words, in my worship, in my willingness to let my pride down here. Live here, Lord, live here. You can just tell him that. It's so simple. There's no striving. There's no effort. There's no beating yourself over the head. There's just, Lord, I need you. There's just, Lord, I need you. Lord, I love you. Thank you for pursuing me. Lord, I need you again. Lord, don't let pride sneak into my heart. Lord, don't let me resist you. Don't let me elevate myself to the place where you belong. It's so simple. Just tell him. Just tell him. We thank you for your sweet presence that fills hearts of repentance. Lord, we're so sorry. We're so sorry for resisting you so often. We're so sorry for listening to the customs and practices of our culture that are just designed to put us in control. And we say no. We say no. We clash with that. We clash with it in every way because it's death. And you bring life. So Lord, bring us life once again here in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen.